Hello and welcome to Being Well, I'm Forrest Hansen. If you're new to the podcast, this is where we explore the practical science of lasting well-being. And if you've listened before, welcome back. Today, we're opening up our mailbag and exploring some of the questions that we receive from listeners. To help me do that, I'm joined today, as usual, by Dr. Rick Hansen. Rick is a clinical psychologist, a best-selling author, and he's also my dad. So, Dad, how are you doing today? Oh, I'm good, Forrest. I really am. And I like these mailbags because in this eclectic collection, we find really, really important universal themes. So I'm looking forward to uh, talking about all this with you. Totally agree. There were a few questions where we absolutely could devote full episodes to what people were asking about. So we're going to try to move a little bit quickly through some of these so that we're able to get to maybe four or five of them rather than just spending all of our time on one or two. But these are all questions that we receive through social media or email. And you can find our social accounts on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter, or by following the links to them in the description of today's episode on your podcast player. And if you'd like to have a question answered on a future edition of the show, you can just send it in to me at contact at beingwellpodcast.com. If you'd really like to get a question answered, you can join us on Patreon. I respond to pretty much every message we receive over there. It's patreon.com slash beingwellpodcast. So for a little extra context, I've removed some identifying details, and I've occasionally paraphrased or simplified the questions to make them a bit more universal. Okay, so let's start with a pretty big one. The question is, why do our brains keep us stuck on familiar patterns and ways of thinking, even when we know those cause us pain and prolonged suffering? And this is from the questioner. I'm thinking of a tendency I have to always fear the worst and revert to a familiar, sad feeling of nothing works out for me. This includes going back to old, painful memories when triggered. Of course, the act of thinking that actually makes things feel worse. But it's like my brain is desperate to cling onto it because it values a familiar thing, even a negative one, rather than a positive novelty. For instance, thinking more positively. It's like my brain's choosing to feel awful. What's happening there? Well, first, you have a take about this, that this question gets at kind of the crux of all mental health. What's your take about that? Yeah, my personal belief about this, and this is a little bit of a contentious belief, and there are definitely people out there in the mental health space who would disagree with me, but most of the time, I think that we know what we should be doing. I'm not trying to devalue the role of having new ideas or seeing yourself differently or any of that. But talking to different people over the course of my life, I've really found that if you give people an opportunity, they are immensely insightful about the nature of their psyche. So then the question becomes, okay, with all of that insight, why is it still so difficult for us to change? So yeah, I think that this is just like the central question. We've obviously grappled with it uh, in past episodes of the podcast a little bit, but I'm not sure if we've ever really had a very clear and cogent kind of five to 10 minute summary of what's going on here. Would you like to try to offer that here, Dad? Or would you like me to kind of keep going? I'll take a crack at four kinds of why. Awesome. Love it. And very on brand. I now have a list. And (laughs) so we're answering the question, basically, why am I stuck? Why do I keep doing that old stuff that I know is not good for me? Why do I keep reverting? Why? Okay, well, there are four kinds of whys. Number one why is because your brain was evolved to be this way. Evolved toward a negativity bias, evolved toward overlearning from negative experiences, evolved toward, in the short run, being quick 
and inflexible rather than slow and more flexible in terms of change. So that's one kind of why. A second kind of why could be because your circumstances might be stressful. You might be undersupported in your environment. You might be living in late-stage capitalism with massive wealth inequality. <laughs> you know, whatever it is, your, your neighbors might be jerks. Uh, your partner might be a lunatic. Your teenager might be really sullen and mean. Whatever it is, external influences, environmental effects, which, of course, are a field of opportunity. We can't do much about the evolved nature of the brain. We can compensate for it, but we can't do much about it directly. To the extent we can do something about our environments, scaled up from broad systems of social injustice all the way down to what your neighbor is like or the person you live with or sleep with, that's a field of opportunity. The third kind of why is potentially because your underlying mood is priming you cognitively. Hmm. This particular question is about cognitive activity. What do I think about? And our thinking is very much shaped by our feeling. Of course, the flow goes in both directions, but feelings shape thoughts. And having an underlying depressive or anxious mood, maybe as a result somewhat of genetics, also acquired over time, maybe related to some kind of physical health problem that kind of flattens mood. Paying attention to your underlying emotional mood and the way it affects you and kind of primes you in one direction or another is really, really, really useful, including the ways in which that we can become primed with regard to irritability. Kind of the three classic problematic primings are melancholy, anxiety, and irritability. And those who are primed with a more positive mood tend to have better outcomes, both in terms of health and in terms of functioning and productivity in the world. So take a look at your mood. And then the fourth kind of why is this why is because you haven't yet gotten to the roots of this particular mental habit pattern. You haven't gotten all the way down to the deepest, typically youngest roots of this acquired way of being, this learned behavior. And this is not a finger wagging at you or a blame. It's really a declaration of opportunity. There's a fantastic opportunity here to get to the root of things. Mm, now, there are many mm -hmm. people who are engaged with it, including your partner, Elizabeth, uh, in her training in somatic psychology, a lot of somatic therapists. You and I try to get at some of these roots in our book, Resilient. Yeah, totally. Uh, I've tried to get at some of them in the linking step in the HEAL framework of self-directed neuroplasticity, whereby we associate big positive material to matched negative material that's smaller and off to the side, a standard therapeutic and mental health technique. Whatever it might be, there are different methods that can address this fourth because, which is to say getting to the root of the issue. Yeah, great breakdown, I think, of a ton of material for starters. To simplify your list of four into a list of two, which is kind of my job on this podcast in general. So we're both. And then we're going to have one ring to rule them all. <laughs> we're both sort of leading into our tropes here a little bit. You can look at kind of two categories, I think. We can look at the underlying structural stuff. You mentioned that was sort of the first entry on your four point list. And then we can look at the psychological stuff. And there's definitely some structural stuff that causes us to do this. Uh, some of this, the jury's a little bit out on, but we basically know that the brain overly references towards our negative experiences. 
It does this in our memory. Two things tend to stand out for people in memory. The first is affect, and the second is proximity. So what that means is that when you have a very emotionally affecting experience, it tends to stick in your memory. And when you experience something directly, it tends to stick in your memory, as opposed to experiencing it secondhand. Now, what is the brain really good at noticing? Well, Dad, you just said it. It's our negative experiences, right? Those are the ones that tend to stand out to our brain. So that just tells us something about what tends to get lodged in our memory. It's the negative things that happen directly to us, and then mm. our behaviors flow from there. So there's this way in which the underlying biology of our system, which was based largely just on what helped us survive under harsh conditions, ends up influencing our psychology. In other words, how we think about the world around us. So these two systems have a lot of interplay, and they're responsible for... Man, all sorts of cognitive biases and just design annoyances that I think this question is really getting at in terms of how our brain functions. I think a lot of this ultimately gets back to defenses, hmm. where the brain is trying to protect you. The psyche is trying to protect you against painful experiences. And the bet that it is making is that by overestimating or kind of like oversticking to how bad some past things were, it can protect you from future painful things because you know that you're never going to want to do that ever again because it felt so bad back then. That's the bet the brain is making. Now, the problem is that it's wrong a lot of the time, and therefore we have to do a lot of work. But that's what kind of the root cause of some of these things is. Lately, I've been really paying attention in my own mm. personal practice to the ways in which our brain is an expectation machine. Mm. There's a lot of neuroscience, including going down to the most basic level of sensory motor learning. There's a lot of neuroscience that's about the ways in which the brain is continually forming an expectation or a prediction and then matching what's happening against that prediction as a way to correct errors, as a way also to highlight discrepancies between what you predict and what turns out, mm -hmm. especially if what turns out is scary and threatening. Although also sometimes if what turns out is actually good news. So we're continually doing that. And going back to the to the Buddhist tradition, Buddhist psychology, just for judging it on its own merits, the Buddha identified three kinds of craving, three kinds of attachment that's problematic. One is craving with regard to what were called sense pleasures, the ending of pain, the maintenance of pleasure. Okay. Then there's the craving for becoming, just that word, becoming. And you can observe in your mind this repetitive process. We ruminate about who we are becoming. We're engaged in affective forecasting. We're continually making little plans, or we're continually anticipating little threats or enormous threats. We're engaged in a process of becoming. And then there's the third object of clinging or object of craving, no longer becoming, ending, annihilation. Mm. So in his thorough way, uh, the Buddha kind of laid that out. So think about our craving for becoming and the subtleties mm. about that mm. and the intensity of the way in which the brain is generating that. Now, this particular person is talking about fears of what they will become and habitual fears that what will become is that nothing will work out for me or that what will become will be like those early painful, perhaps traumatic experiences mm. that this person had. Mm -hmm. So. It's very helpful for people broadly 
to pay attention to the machinery of becoming and to use it well and not let it use you. Mm. There's a place for being clear-eyed about threats coming toward you, both distant and proximal. Yeah. Absolutely. But this is a person who's describing an overly pessimistic prediction about what the future will be like for them in the next minute or hour or day. And what a person can do is, number one, become mindful of that automaticity of anticipation. Mm. There's this, you never saw it for us, it's from the 70s or 80s, the Rocky Horror Picture Show. Oh, I've definitely seen the Rocky Horror Picture oh, Show, okay, for good. the record. I've gone to live showings of the Rocky oh, Horror Picture gosh. Show. Oh, my Okay, good. You're, which you're is a whole hip. other conversation. Was, but yeah, I was okay. worried about you, dude. I thought you were like super square, <laughs> but no, you're kind of cool, actually. Who yeah, knew? I got oh, my moments, really. yeah. Anyway, you know the line, anticipation. Patient. Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so we can become number one, right? Super mindful of anticipation. Patient, and then second, really mindful to biases in that anticipatory process. A handful of people are overly optimistic, and they should become a little more clear-eyed and realistic. But most of us, me included, tend to be biased negatively for all the reasons that you said. Yeah. And this is a person who could really pay a lot of attention to that and then challenge that prediction and keep noticing, actually, that that prediction is routinely wrong. Yeah, no, I think that's a fantastic answer, Dad, to a very complicated and deep, deep question. So I hope that the person who wrote it in was listening and got some value out of that one. But okay, I think that that's about as much time as we can spend on that. I also want to go to our next question, which we actually had a lot of fun talking about before the conversation, because it really gets to a lot of different things. So here's the question. I'm a longtime listener, and I like your podcast. As a therapist, I've noticed how often you and Rick use the phrase kind of or sort of. I feel like this reduces the potency of your statements, and you might try leaving it out sometimes. Is this an unconscious tick? Are you doing it deliberately? We also received a recent review of uh, the podcast on iTunes, which could basically be summarized by saying, Forrest, for the love of all things holy, stop saying kind of all of the time. So we talked about this, and it's got a lot of different elements. I want to kind of give you an opportunity to get in here. Oh, I just did it, kind of. I want to kind of give you an opportunity to get in here first, Dad, and just share what you've been thinking about. There's so much in this feedback. Yeah, totally. One thing this person is pointing to is the ways in which all of us have habits of one kind or another, Mm -hmm. many of which we're unaware of. Totally. I was thinking of, I believe, to paraphrase him, William James, the godfather of psychology in America, legendary thinker and writer, who said essentially that we are bundles of habits. Yeah, It's impossible to not have habits. Habits are very efficient ways for the brain to summarize and essentialize and automatize all kinds of processing. We're bundles of habits, cannot get away from that. The only question is, can we reduce our bad habits and, and have and cultivate and develop more good ones? One of those bad habits are these various speech ticks. You know, kind of. Yeah. Well. Yep. I've been struck often by how, by how often people <laughs> begin their sentences with the word well. You'll see people do that routinely mm. when they're interviewed mm-hmm. on television. For example, they'll typically start with well. It's a kind of verbal tick. It's quite common. Mm-hmm. So what do we do about all that? One question that arises, 
has to do with our real-time self-monitoring, our mindfulness, including for automaticities of speech, particularly in ways that don't bottle us up, that still allow the free flow, but have a little bit of monitoring. Kind of the sweet spot there. That's a question. Second question is, how do people respond to input, including critical input, (laughs) negative (laughs) feedback? Here it is. What are you and I going to do with this? How are we going to relate to it? Are we going to shoot the messenger? Mm -hmm. The way you described the input that we got was that it was clean and civil, at least the way I Mm -hmm. sort of define staying in bounds. In any case, the question then becomes for you and for me, what do we do with this information? And for myself, one of the things I've learned along the way that's been helpful for me is to try to make learning fun. Mm -hmm. In other words, if so much of what helps a person be happy and function well and contribute a lot is to learn and develop along the way, including unlearning old bad habits, well, you can really serve yourself in that process, particularly with regard to the motivating of it, because it's sometimes challenging to find ways in which it's enjoyable or meaningful to you to learn and grow along the way. So I'm going to make this a little game for myself and a game that, in a sense, I can win at, not by defeating other people, but a game in which I can become actually a little more competent at tracking the speech tick of sort of, kind of, and other kinds of automaticities that I engage in. Mm -hmm. Last point, quickly here. Now we're at the substance of what this person's getting at. Mm -hmm. Is it skillful or unskillful Mm -hmm. to make a dogmatic and unqualified assertion? Or is it skillful and useful to be mealy-mouthed and beat around the bush endlessly? Or (laughs) is there a middle way somewhere between the two of those, between... Scylla and Charybdis, as it were, mm. with a busting out a little Odyssey reference here. There you go. Wow, yeah. So many references I wasn't expecting already on this show between uh, anticipation and the Odyssey <laughs> and the whole thing. Yeah, I, I think you really summarized it super well there. And to get to the making the soup side of this, what goes into podcasting, there's this kind of balance that I think that you were speaking to, Dad between wanting to appear loose and conversational and casual, which tends to sound really nice, while also trying to be attentive to some of these patterns that can emerge. So that's all super well taken. And as you're saying, Dad, I've definitely tried to become more attentive about it because this is not the first time that somebody has asked that question or mentioned that. And then I want to pivot to what I think is actually kind of the more interesting part of the conversation, which is what you said at the end there around... Is it a good thing, broadly speaking, to make very declarative assertions, or is it a good thing to kind of massage things a little bit and be deliberate and careful about it, deliberately using the phrase kind of there? And my personal view is that there has been this enormous pivot culturally toward being confident over being accurate. And I think we're living the consequences of it. I think that you see it on the news. I think that you see it in terms of, frankly, the podcasts that get to the very top of the rankings, where there are these personalities out there who will make these extremely declarative statements with a real lack of nuance attached to them. 
And those statements make for really good sound bites, and those sound bites get shared all over social media, and they become extremely popular. And that is not often associated with a lot of nuance and careful holding and hemming and hawing and sure there's this side and yes there's that other side. And that's all stuff that we definitely tend to do on the podcast because when you're dealing with incredibly nuanced and highly individualized topics having to do with mental health and psychology, my personal view is that it is super appropriate to say well, it's a little bit like this, but it's also kind of like that, and we're not totally sure about this one, and it's sort of this way, but maybe it's that way, because this is such a highly individual process. And my hope in my, in my you know, recesses of my soul is that that's a value add for people who listen to the podcast as opposed to something that turns them off. But there's a balance there, right? And for me, the practice is to really make sure that I'm using those waiting phrases, those space-filling phrases, like kind of, sort of, honestly, well, you know, all of that stuff deliberately, as opposed to doing it just to fill space. And I think that that's maybe the key distinction here. Yes. sorry yeah i waxed poetic for a second there because i've been thinking about it a lot uh do you have anything to add there dad or or is that more or less it two notions to add to it Mm -hmm. the first is that in my own background coming up through the human potential movement late 60s 70s there were a lot of highly charismatic oh yeah human potential teachers oh yeah very confident and gurus even usually male, not always. Mm -hmm. And I would have to say, in every single case, there was a direct correlation between the certainty of their verbal style and the ego and exploitation. Problems associated with them, yeah, totally. And abuse that occurred in and around that organization. And so I've become particularly attentive to people who are clear that they're fully enlightened and that they've got the scoop, the real scoop. And if you would just follow their three-point plan or seven-point program or take the blue pill, then you're good to go. Yeah. Very leery of that. Point one. Now I'm going to search for my memory store for, I had an excellent point two. (laughs) Oh, Here we go. I'm sure it was excellent, Dad. Okay, (laughs) Yeah, I think it is, actually. (laughs) Point two. There's a real question here that has to do with the attitude and orientation of anyone in a, I'll say broadly, teaching role. Yeah. Therapist, counselor, coach, Mm -hmm. supervisor in a business, parent, so forth. How do you relate to the person, the group, let's say, that you are trying to offer some kind of value to Mm -hmm. or Mm -hmm. train in some way? Mm -hmm. And this gets at the distinction that I would summarize as between growth 1.0 and growth 2.0. In growth 1.0, there's an attitude that the other person is a passive vessel. So the more certain and confident you are, the more likely it is that the vessel will sort of, oh, line up with what you're saying. Yep, And that your job is just pour the truth into them, the, the real methods, the real insights, the real everything, pour it into them. In growth 2.0, people are regarded as active agents. 
in their own healing, growing, and awakening from the inside out. And in particular, active agents in what they gain from whatever's being kind of tossed at them or poured into them in the ways in which they relate to the experiences they're having at the time to heighten the transition, the conversion from states to traits. Mm -hmm. And in Growth 2.0, when you regard the people who are listening to the podcast as highly autonomous individuals Mm. who can judge for themselves the merits of what you're offering, then it's appropriate for a certain diffidence, a certain softening of the edges, because we're making the offering, we're laying it kind of at the feet of other people with respect for their own capacity to autonomously choose whether to pick it up or not and whether to take it on board or not. Mm. So that too, I think, is an underlying orientation, worldview, and value that you and I share that leads to a certain style we have and how we speak. At the same time, I absolutely think that there is a useful input part of this communication that is being made, both in terms of, hey, have fewer annoying waiting phrases when you talk, and also an element of it where I was talking with Elizabeth, my partner, who we've already named the other night, about this question because it I it was just really interesting and I was really chewing on it. And I kind of went through this whole spiel that we've talked about so far with her. And she said, well, I totally agree with that, Forrest. And also, I think you could stand to be a little bit more confident sometimes with your views. So maybe that's just a defense mechanism around a certain form of not wanting to be wrong or not wanting to be perceived as a egotistical or arrogant person in your presentation of view and all of that stuff. And that is a fair point as well. So I think that's about all the time that we can spend there. If you're like me, you've probably started to pay closer attention to your long-term health as you've aged. Turning 35 was a bit of a wake-up call for me, and I'm always looking for good sources of information, because it's often really difficult to separate fact from fiction when it comes to our physical health. We had Dr. Tim Spector on the podcast a few years ago. He's a professor of genetic epidemiology and the scientific co-founder at Zoe. And the Zoe Science and Nutrition podcast is truly one of the best resources out there when it comes to this stuff. With the help of world-leading scientists, they help you make smarter health choices every week. And you don't have to just take my word for it. Avid podcast fan Stephanie's Apple Review says the Zoe Science and Nutrition podcast is a life-changing, science-based, myth-busting podcast. That's a must-listen for anyone who eats food and wants to understand how it affects their body. With the Zoe Science and Nutrition Podcast, you can join Stephanie and millions of others transforming their health. Find it wherever you listen to podcasts. As somebody who's really struggled with skin issues like acne over the course of my life, I know just how great it is to not stress about what's going on with your skin. That's why I'm excited to tell you about today's sponsor, OneSkin. Their products make it easy to keep your skin healthy while looking and feeling your best. No complicated routine, no multi-step protocols, just simple, scientifically validated solutions. The secret is OneSkin's proprietary OS01 peptide. It's the first ingredient proven to work with the aging cells that cause lines, wrinkles, and thinning skin. And as somebody who's used plenty of complicated routines in the past, I love the simplicity of using their OS01 face topical peptide. Just cleanse, pat your skin dry, and apply it twice daily. Get started today with 15% off using code BEINGWELL at oneskin.co. That's 15% off oneskin.co with code being well. 
After your purchase, they'll ask you where you came from, and please support the show and tell them that we sent you. If you like being well, I think you'll really enjoy the Dr. John Delaney Show. Dr. John's show was recently in the top five of all podcasts on Apple Podcasts, which is just an incredible accomplishment, and it speaks to how much value people get out of the show. Dr. John has a PhD in counseling, and he's been working with people for over 20 years, and the show has a very cool format. Real people call into the show, and he walks them through how to navigate a tough situation related to common challenges. Maybe it's something related to their relationships, anxieties, or emotional well-being. He explores a lot of topics that are similar to what we talk about on this podcast, but while we can sometimes be pretty theoretical in nature, the format of John's show just creates a lot of directness and practicality to it. I think it's actually a really nice compliment to what we do here on Being Well. No matter what you're going through, the Dr. John Delaney Show is here for you. And if you ever need some advice, you know who to call. Listen to the Dr. John Delaney Show wherever you get your podcasts, or follow the link on our website. There's another question that I wanted to ask you, Dad. Mm. So here it goes. On the podcast, you regularly tell people that you can't just trust everything your brain is telling you. You've also said things like, don't believe everything you think. But I'm wondering, how do you know which thoughts you should be paying attention to and which ones that you can just observe and let fly by? Because it seems to me that sometimes your thoughts are trying to tell you something pretty important. I think this is a fundamental question. And I'm reminded, honestly, of, I believe it's a teaching in the Bible. I think it was Jesus. It's attributed to Jesus who said, ye shall know a tree by its fruits. What are the results? And if I could also quote another spiritual teacher, the Buddha, He was asked in a kind of a famous passage, he came to a little village of the Kalyanas. And the Kalyanas asked him, well, sir, what you say sounds good, but the guy who was here yesterday also sounded really good, and he said the opposite of what you're saying here. I love this passage that you're talking about, by the way. This is probably my favorite section in the the Pali canon, the whole thing, so yeah. Oh, that's sweet, and it would be very relevant to your nature, too, for us. Totally. Good thing, yeah. And so there's a language around it, but the essence of it is uh, they're basically saying, how do we know what's, what's true? How, how do we know who to listen to? And the Buddha says, basically, do not form your conclusions based on the authority or tradition that is coming at you. Do not base your conclusions on the glitz, the charisma, the glamour around all that. Base your conclusions on observing over time what is conducive to the happiness and welfare of yourself and others, distinct from what leads to suffering and harm for yourself and others. Judge the value of the offering by its fruits, as it were. And I think that's the essence of it all. Totally. We're going to have thoughts that bubble up here and there. I think it's actually really good to have an attitude with your thoughts initially of don't know, beginner's mind and and maybe, and oh, what's this thought trying to tell me? Even if it's telling me in a way that's over the top or extreme, overly fearful or overly intense and so forth, what's it trying to tell me? And then over time, really just keep asking, is this beneficial? Yeah. Is this beneficial? And that's kind of the test. And is does it turn out to be true? Yeah, really, really good summary, I think. And 
connected to the story you told or that, you know, apocryphal story that's in the in the polycanon. I think that the exact phrase that's used in it is often translated just to see for yourself. Yeah, that's right. Is the teaching phrase that is often returned to it, the basic idea being that you're not supposed to rely on faith. Yeah. That the Buddha was actually pretty opposed to faith as a concept in general, if you dig into a lot of what's attributed to him as being his specific words. Because right? his idea was that, look, these things have benefits for people. And so see for yourself. See if you derive benefit from what I'm teaching. And if you do, pay attention to it. And if you don't, well, okay, maybe it's not for you. And wow, what a what a great way to frame a worldview, right? So that's part of the reason that uh, I, I found Buddhist thought and philosophy in general kind of more accessible than some of the other contemplative traditions for me personally as a as somebody with a deeply skeptical orientation toward the world broadly to just add a little bit of content to what you've said here dad i think that part of it is about knowing our own tendencies right mm. and that's really what you're what you're highlighting here also where i know that i have different kinds of tendencies one tendency that i have is to think that i haven't worked hard enough in a day that's my first tendency. I get to the end of the day, my assumption is that I didn't do enough work. Well, okay, if those thoughts arise, it's appropriate for me to be a little bit skeptical of them because I know mm. that that's my tendency. I also know that I have a tendency to be highly trusting of other people. Uh, this is something I've had many conversations with Elizabeth about. So this means that if I have a moment inside of myself where I kind of go, hmm, I don't know if this person's really being so great, then wow, I should really pay attention to that. Because my tendency is to not think that way. So it's just kind of a way to run your thoughts through a sieve and start to shake it and sort of go, huh, what is getting caught in this net over and over again? Or what tends to just flow through without any evaluation? So maybe that's one way to look at it. What an excellent point. Well, thank you, Dad. Including two kinds of balance, right? Knowing yeah. what you do habitually and therefore tending to swerve away from, on the other hand, knowing what you tend to not do enough and instead fertilize that particular flower totally. yep. as it tries to take roots in the garden of your mind. Yeah, absolutely. So I think that's kind of a good way to hold it. And if you're trying to evaluate your own patterns of thought, maybe that's a way that you can think about it as well. So I'm going to move on to our next question here. We're going to get through this one. We might be able to get to a fifth one. We'll see how much time we've got. Can you speak a bit about how to improve unhealthy sibling relationships? My sibling and I are very close in age, with a long history of ups and downs. We get into fights over menial things most times we hang out. I would like to deepen our friendship, but I'm unsure how to proceed. After enough fights, I have a very difficult time simply trusting them, let alone opening up. I remember sitting in my first class in developmental psychology that included adult development. This was some years ago. And the professor made an offhand remark that has completely struck me, which is mm. for most people, the individuals that they will know for the greatest number of years over their lifespan are their siblings. Yeah, Our parents pass away. We meet new mates and partners. Our siblings travel with us usually over the full course of the lifespan. These are very consequential relationships. And I've come to appreciate that sometimes sibling relationships can be really warm and supportive. It's very striking, both in my personal experience and also observation, as well as in literature, 
how often siblings do grow apart and diverge. Sometimes in a simple, ordinary, they just start losing touch with each other. They're less and less engaged with each other's lives. Mm -hmm. Yeah, if not, there being serious conflict. So with regard to sibling relationships or just about any other significant relationship, what can you do when it's not going so well? Many things you can do. I tend to focus on what can we do ourselves? Because we have limited influence. This, of course, is a familiar theme for you and me. We have limited influence over others, but we have a lot of influence over ourselves. So when I think about this person who's talking about that we have a history of getting into conflicts with each other over menial things, it takes two to have a conflict. Mm. So one person can find that middle place in which they're not allowing themselves to be abused or stepped on. They're not suppressing important things inside themselves to communicate, while on the other hand, they are increasingly disengaging from the scripts that the other person is familiar with and trying to pull them into. Don't play that role. One great way to do it, to use one of your favorite words, pause. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Pause and consider speaking different lines or speaking no lines at all that disrupt the familiar script-like process of getting into a recurring quarrel with another person. Just that alone can often make an enormous difference in relationships where you reduce the conflicts. You can see this scaled up at the level of world events. Certainly, you can also see it scaled down to, to relationships between just two people. If one person just simply gives the other person less and less to react to or take issue with or criticize, that tends to lower the heat and then gradually can help people desensitize. Then it also becomes clear, too, what the agenda of the other person is. In other words, if you are increasingly taking a higher road, you're practicing, as you and I talk about it, unilateral virtue, you're stepping out of those familiar scripts, you are not yourself putting any more gasoline or fuel on that fire, and then you start to see what the other person does and how committed they are to dragging you back into those old ways of being or whether or not they can walk with you together Mm. down a higher road. Great imagery there, Dad, in terms of the poetic walk with you down a higher road. I like that. That was nice. To highlight a piece of this, I'm going to pull out the bit you said about these are the people that you have the longest relationship with, because there are a couple of consequences of that. I had a reflection when I was, I don't know, early 20s or something. I think I said it to you one time, Dad, where I was talking about my romantic relationships. And I was saying something along the lines of, I feel like it's a lot easier to grow in between my relationships than inside of my relationships. Mm. Because sometimes what happens, I think, with people is that they do a lot of learning inside a certain, pick your poison, friend group, relationship, work environment, whatever, any kind of circumstantial container that they're in. And they're learning and they're growing inside of themselves, but sometimes it's tough to put that learning and growth into action in the space that they currently are because patterns of behavior have been developed. And those patterns are often extremely difficult to break inside of that container. Then they leave that container and it's like, oh my God, there's this sudden surge of growth and change and development 
Well, because it's not sudden at all. It was happening the whole time. They just had a hard time putting it into action inside of that container. So our family relationships in general and our sibling relationships specifically present a real problem here because we don't enter and exit them most of the time as time goes on. And you can might be radically different from the person you were back then. But it takes so many instances of interacting with a person and having them be radically different for us to update our priors about the way that person is. And that creates a lot of challenges inside of our relationships. I'm not really offering a, a corrective for this. I'm just outlining why this is such a fraught process often, particularly inside of families. One thing to do about this is that sometimes you actually can just take a little bit of time away from a person. Not in a mean way or in a you're trying to avoid them way, but just you have an opportunity that emerges in life naturally to have a little space. And then you can kind of re-enter the relationship as a different person. My sister and I had an opportunity for this when I went away for college. We had a very fraught interpersonal relationship, as you know, my dad would be more than happy to comment on, I'm sure. No uh, was, oh, no. comment. <laughs> no comment. <laughs> it's, that was a smart move there, dad. Good one. Yeah, but it was it was brutal. I mean, we like we just killed each other. We didn't I won't say we hated each other because I don't think we did, but man, were we stepping on each other's toes and being mean to each other, and we had just developed these very negative patterns of behavior with each other as kids. And then I left the house. I went to college. We got some space. We became adults. And we had this sort of beautiful opportunity later in life in my early 20s to have a lot of real cathartic moments with each other and get to know each other as people as opposed to knowing each other just as, you know, my idiot brother or my annoying sister. And wow, that was a wonderful opportunity that we had. So I just want to highlight the, the possible healing there. And then associated with that, not to ramble for too long here, but just one distinct thing, it often takes a person to really take the first step and to get out of their comfort zone and to maybe have a really vulnerable moment mm. where you're thinking to yourself, I could really get hurt by this, but I'm just going to lay it on the line and we're going to see what happens here. Laurel did that inside of our relationship where she had just a really emotional moment with me one time and I was in a good place with it and our relationship was really growing and changing in positive ways and I was able to really take the ball from her and run with it and, and demonstrate some positive change and kind of rewrite some old stories that she was carrying around about me and vice versa. But it often takes somebody to really take that first step in a emotional and vulnerable way in order to change the underlying ground of an established relationship. So maybe you're open to doing that. Maybe you're not. I totally understand if you aren't. There are a lot of good reasons not to do that. But if you really want to make major change, that's often something that is, I, I won't say it's necessary, but it is often very helpful. Really touching for us. And I can absolutely warrant mm. as an observer that the healing process and the the transformation process that you're describing here has borne tremendous amount of fruit yeah. in the relationship between you and your sister. Totally. And I'm very happy about that for you and, and happy as a dad and happy for her too. Yeah, absolutely. No, and and these days I would totally refer to Laurel as, you know, one of my best friends and yeah. just a super close person in my life. And if you had seen us when I was 17 and she was 14, that would probably come as quite the surprise to you. So, hey, you know, positive change absolutely can happen here. 
So, okay, I think we have time for one more question. We'll see how quickly we do this one, but probably just one more. And I think that this one is really directed at you, Dad. When we meditate, we're encouraged to gently let thoughts that arise pass away and then return to some object of our attention. But what if positive thoughts and feelings keep popping up into awareness? I feel as though we should, as Rick puts it, take in the good and not be so quick to dismiss those. So, Dad, what do you think? It's a deep question. And a lot, it has to do with a person's purpose yeah. in meditation. Totally. Now, if a person's purpose is to drop into doing as little as possible while remaining present and aware, then it's not appropriate to make active, deliberate efforts in the mind or to get particularly involved in that. I think it actually is okay as a longtime meditator and someone who's quite engaged at the edge of practice in which you're really dropping into as close as you can get to only being, abiding as awareness, really abiding even as the ground of awareness. So as someone who's engaged with that, I think it's also okay along the way, if you can do it in a light way, to help yourself continually be receptive to and open even more deeply into ways of being that are wholesome, profound, illuminating, increasingly awake. That's, that's okay. But generally, when you're doing that kind of practice, you're doing as little active, deliberate effort as possible. Otherwise, though, certainly during meditation, there are many meditations that are about the cultivation of various qualities, such as loving kindness, uh, compassion, or factors of deep meditative absorption. And as you know, Forrest, in the Southeast Asian Buddhist tradition, there are five named factors actually rooted in early Buddhism itself that promote deep absorption. They're all entirely psychological and secular. They are applying your attention, sustaining your attention to a particular object of absorption, such as the sensations of breathing. Third, the sense of happiness, a kind of sweetness that in Pali is the word for that is sukha, the root of the word in Sanskrit for sugar, sucrose. It's sweet. Fourth factor described as bliss or rapture, piti in Pali, very intense, almost not quite orgasmic, but very, very intense bodily pleasure. And then fifth factor, singleness of mind, a sense of unification of mind in which you're simply present as kawush, the totality of the mind stream as a whole, uh, feeling the unification of it in the present continuously. I don't mean to be esoteric here. I'm just trying to name the fact that 40% of the factors of deep meditative absorption involve intense positive emotion. Yeah. And as you know, and I see it in the notes for this with some amazement <laughs> and delight, yeah. you actually know something about the jhanas, Ooh. these deep exotic states that are characterized, especially the early jhanas, yeah. with very intensive positive emotion. Although it tends to drop out into a sense of extraordinary well-being that feels very tranquil and sublime. Yeah, and uh, that was just kind of a, a note to self that I put in there. 
because I think that it really highlights this core thing. I'm, I'm not nearly the practice person, obviously, that you are, Dad. You have your, uh, by the way, Rick has a Wednesday night meditation group that is open to everybody. It's totally free. It's done over Zoom, question mark, yes. Yep. So if you actually want to engage in some meditation with Rick, you can do that every Wednesday. And uh, I'll include a link to it in the notes about today's podcast episode if you want to check that out, because it's super cool. And I just think that it's really interesting in terms of this question the concepts that we have about the nature of mindfulness and meditation, particularly in Western culture, and the stories that we're kind of caring about it, around it being this sort of abstract, very pure, there's nothing emerging into your awareness, you're just going for ultimate oneness and insight into the nature of reality. And yeah, you can do that. That is on the table, absolutely. But I think that for most people, it's okay to hang out in the part of the pool where the emphasis is just feeling really great. It's just doing it as a practice of feeling really great. And yeah, if you get to those other places, amazing. Um, but it's okay to just use it as a tool to feel good. So if something positive emerges into your consciousness, please, yeah, hang out with it. Why not? Assuming that it's not hijacking you in a problematic way, as you were saying, Dad, in terms of if you're really focusing on insight. Also, to just really quickly put a put a bow on what you said about the jhana states. So there are these kind of esoteric states that people can get to, very, very developed states of concentration or focus or deep insight. They're powerful meditative states. Most people only ever sniff the first couple of them, maybe, if they spend a lot of time practicing. Uh, so these are not things that everyone gets to for whatever reason. But I think it's really interesting that even in these very elaborate, esoteric, deep practice states, the first couple of them, if I'm remembering correctly, particularly the first one, really focuses on, oh my God, this feels amazing. That is, that is what it is. That is the state is, oh my God, this feels amazing. Again, to simplify a lot of stuff. And it just kind of speaks to the importance of positive emotion and positive experience in these forms of contemplative practice. So. This great for us, and it, I'll just say maybe two things here about that kind of quickly. They may know the term satipatthana. That's mm, mm -hmm. exotic. Okay, so sati is the Pali word for mindfulness. Patana often is translated as foundations. Arguably, arguably, a better translation is the establishments. Where is mindfulness to be established? So think about what is it that we are seeking to establish within ourselves. What are we seeking to establish ourselves in as states of consciousness, as ways of being. And it's really okay to focus on what is, and I'll use a, little, a different word here, what is coming to dwell inside you? Or to say the same thing a little differently, what is your ongoing dwelling place? Mm. Not based on positive thinking or a spiritual bypass or rose-colored glasses, but based on repetitive internalization and resting in and mm. marinating in that which is wholesome, healthy, and wise. Mm. And I put it a certain way of marinating in deep green, marinating mm. in, the, in the resting state in which there's a sense that in the present there is an enoughness of needs being met mm. so that the brain and body can default to its resting state, its home base, in which the body repairs and refuels itself and, and in which the mind is colored with a broad sense of peacefulness, contentment, and love as umbrella terms. That's deep green. And the more that we marinate in deep green, those qualities become established in us. Mm. And essentially, 
where our attention dwells becomes increasingly that which dwells within us. Mm. Love that. Great way to put it. And also, I think, a really fantastic capper for our episode here. So today we had a great time answering a variety of questions from our listeners. We began today's episode by answering a question focused on why our brain seems to stay stuck in problematic patterns of behavior or thought, even when we know that we should be doing something differently. For me, we can break this into two different categories. The first category is the biological construction of the brain by evolution. And a big part of that was keeping people alive so they could pass on genes that would pass on genes. And this leads us to have a heavy bias around negativity. Another thing that we know about the brain is that it really wants to conserve energy, and habits are a great way to do that. Then there are some psychological consequences that come from those biological tendencies. And one of those psychological consequences is that we can get very attached to previous views of ourselves, ways we had of being and doing out in the world, and just generally kind of how we establish our self-concept altogether. It takes a lot of energy to change how we think about ourselves and to change how we act out in the world. And changing how we act out in the world can expose us to experiences that the brain believes are going to be very painful for us because they really hurt our feelings back then or they led to some negative consequence or whatever else. And so the brain is essentially making a kind of bet. It's betting that by avoiding those experiences, it's going to protect us from more pain than we're currently having, even if the way that it does that is by making us think all of these really negative thoughts about ourselves all of the time. Now, the problem is that the brain is often wrong, and we explore a lot of ways to interact with these problematic tendencies of our brain in other podcast episodes. Our second question was a really interesting one that we really dug into, and it had to do with our excessive usage of phrases like kind of, sort of, maybe, who knows, uh, and all of that different stuff that we do on this podcast. And in our engagement of this question, we separated it into two different categories. The first category was essentially related to the unconscious behaviors that everybody has. I have a lot of unconscious patterns of speech, and one of my jobs as a podcaster is to become a little bit more aware of how I talk and the way it sounds to people who are listening. And in that category, it totally makes sense for us to cut down on the number of waiting phrases that we use or the unconscious things that we do, and generally for people broadly to become more self-aware. That's a good thing. Then at the same time, there's this other question which is how do we want to present information on the show? And is it better for us to be really, really confident about the views that we express? Or is it better for us to try to be accurate about the information that we're giving you? Because the truth is that whenever you're engaging with mental health, psychology, self-help, personal growth, whatever in this space, you're going to encounter an enormous amount of individuality. What works for one person may not work for another. And therefore, there's a lot of uncertainty in how we're talking about these different things. And then layered on top of that, there's a lot that we still don't know, that we're still figuring out about how the brain works, how the body works, and how our whole 
psychological system interacts with those other things. Our bias on the show is to be really honest about uncertainty and to be clear about the ways in which we don't totally know what's going on and we're not completely sure about what's really going to work for you. At the same time, because we do put a lot of work in and we try to do our research and make sure that we're on top of our information, there is probably the place for being a little bit more authoritative, and we'll definitely take that as advice. We then talked about which thoughts we should be paying attention to and which ones we should be letting slide on by. And Rick had a great anecdote about how we should be thinking about our thoughts in general, which is see for yourself what are the patterns of thought that tend to benefit you and what are the patterns of thought that tend to lead to some consequences. Then alongside that, I gave some additional advice about knowing your own tendencies. If you're the kind of person who catastrophizes a lot, it's probably appropriate for you to take a look at those catastrophic thoughts and be very skeptical of them when they appear in your mind. Then there was a question about improving our relationships with our siblings or family members broadly. And there were two points that we highlighted here. The first, Rick really emphasized the importance of staying out of conflict and some practices that people can do to stay out of conflict. Namely, they can take a pause. If you feel yourself being drawn into some kind of problematic interaction with another person, see if there's an opportunity to take a breath, to just kind of Aikido it right on by you and to keep on going. Then alongside that, I really highlighted this funny feature of long-term relationships where we can get kind of trapped in old patterns of behavior, even if we've outgrown them elsewhere in our lives. And sometimes it takes one person taking a really vulnerable step to change the underlying ground of the relationship and thereby change everyone's behavior within it. Then we closed by talking about meditation. The question is, what can you do if you have all this good stuff appearing in your mind while you're meditating, these positive thoughts and feelings? Shouldn't you just be returning to this kind of very focused attention? And we really emphasized how positive emotions are a beautiful part of meditative practice, if that's what you're going for. If you're going for deep insight and total emptiness inside of your experience, well, yeah, maybe it's not appropriate to really hang out with a lot of positive sensation or positive feeling. But if you're in a place in your practice where you really want to emphasize those good feelings, great, there is nothing wrong with that. Long term, sometimes people can get a little sucked into the kind of positive emotional aspects that can be associated with meditation, and that can maybe kind of keep them out of other states that might be available for them. But the truth is that for 90 to 99% of people, there's really nothing wrong with that. If you'd like to have a question answered on a future edition of the podcast, you can reach me at contact at beingwellpodcast.com. And if you would really like to have a question answered, you can join us on Patreon. It's patreon.com slash beingwellpodcast. And I respond to just about every message that we receive over there. If you've been enjoying the show in general, we'd really appreciate it if you would take a moment to subscribe to it through the platform of your choice and maybe even leave a rating and a positive review. It really does help us out. So until next time, thanks for listening, and I hope you have a great week. We'll talk to you soon.